0: Wake up to your sinfulness. Wake up to the stuff that we laugh at that God calls an abomination. Wake up to our time in God's Word. Wake up to prayer. Wake up to the the laissez-faire attitude sometimes we have to God's mission. If it comes along, if He calls, all these Christian slogans we get, we got to wake up. Wake up and be ready. Wake up in our casualness even and our commitment to Christ revealed in our casualness and our worship. I was thinking this week about what Jesus says to the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 3, he says that they make him sick. He says this, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, you make me want to puke. He says, I'll spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich. I've prospered. You're comfortable. I need nothing. And then he gives the a real spiritual place. He says, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Let me add. Wake up! It's like he said at the church in Sardis, we quoted last week. He says that we've fallen asleep, we've got a reputation like we're alive, but we are dead. And today, God's going to call us to extravagant worship. And I want to ask you the question, is your worship an extravagant worship? Are you just casual, kind of lackadaisical, laissez-faire, in your commitment to Christ, which is then revealed in the way that we worship Christ? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14. We're going to cover verses 1 through 11 today. And and what happened last week, for those of you who weren't with us, is in Mark chapter 13, uh, they were leaving the temple, and, and Jesus didn't really have a great time in the temple. He was overturning the tables, confronting hypocrisy. And I don't know if one of his buddies was trying to cheer him up or what, but he said, hey, look at, aren't these buildings beautiful? Isn't this a beautiful temple? And then Jesus says, this whole place is going to be destroyed. Not one rock on top of another, which sparked a couple questions. And Jesus is always going to ask questions in the Gospels. And the questions were, when is this going to happen? What's the date? And tell us the signs. And then Jesus gives the longest response he gives to any question he gets asked in the Gospels. He's a couple days away from being crucified, and you get this incredibly long response. And so what he says is important, but he doesn't tell a date. In fact, he says no one knows the date. But the real question is, when the day comes, are you ready? And he ends with this exhortation, wake up. And the word picture that's being given of being asleep, the sleepiness in the Bible is actually a picture for spiritual dullness. And he says, some people, you're falling asleep. Don't fall asleep. Be alert. Be awake. Stay awake. And that was the the command in verse 37 that ended. Not just for those four disciples, not just for the people at that time. He says, for everybody. Wake up. And then what happens in chapter 14? It's later that day, and Jesus is having a meal with some of his friends. And what we see is there's only one person who's actually alert. One person who's awake. We'll read it together, and as we turn to it, I'll just tell you the, the, kind of the structure of this passage before we unpack it. Uh, verses 1 and 2 are darkness, and it's about the betrayal of Jesus. Verses 3 through 9 shine a bright light where we see the one person that's awake. And then verses 10 and 11, it comes back to some darkness. And so I'll read it to you, and, and then we'll, we'll unpack this passage. It says, it was two days before the Passover. It's also two days before Jesus is going to be crucified. And the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, and by stealth, and kill him. Love that word stealth, but it really means deception. How can we deceptively kill him? For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And we've already seen they're people pleasers. They love people's opinions, and they don't want to get all the people upset. And then verse three. It's like the scene changes. And while he was in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment. Some of your translations say perfume of pure nard. Very costly, and she didn't just open the flask, she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me for you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then it's like back to the darkness, another contrast, verse 10. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priest in order to betray him, to them. And when they heard it, They were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And so we've been going through the book of Mark, and you've seen this literary technique that Mark is using here multiple times. It's called the sandwich technique, where he introduces a topic, and then he does something else, and then he comes back to the topic. And they interpret each other. And so like with the fig tree in the temple, there's this fig tree, curse the fig tree, you're like, what's that? That's weird. And the temple happens, and he comes back to the fig tree. And so here we've got this darkness they're, they're planning to betray Jesus. They're tr- planning to kill Jesus. And then there's this light. You see this extravagant love in verses 3 through 9. And then you come back in verses 10 and 11. It's like it ties it back. There's this darkness again. Now it's Judas. and it's gonna, Now their opportunities come to deceptively, to stealth, in a stealthful way, to kill Jesus. And what we're going to do as we unpack this passage today is we're going to jump into verses 3 through 9 first because I think that's really where the emphasis is at in this passage, the light section that we see. And we see this extravagant love, this lavish love for Jesus. And then we're going to come back and you see the contrast and look at verses 1 and 2 and look at verses 10 and 11 and see the contrast of what's happening there in the middle. And what's happening there in the middle is that we see this woman who's got this real genuine love for Jesus and it expresses itself in an extravagant worship. And what we learn from that is this, is that true love for Jesus results an extravagant worship of Jesus, true love for Jesus. And what's the greatest commandment? Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. The greatest sin is to not do so. When you truly love Jesus, it will result in extravagant worship of Jesus. But before I go far into digging into this passage, first I realize the audience and who I'm talking to. And we live in a time to hear that word extravagant. That almost seems non-Christian. All things in moderation. We live in a time of simplicity. Seems more spiritual than extravagance. In fact, if you go to dictionary.com, and I know some of you have tablets or different uh, things that you can use right now to go to dictionary.com. If you go on there and you look at the definition of extravagance, it'll say things like, in excess, it basically says it's too much. Like when you, get, when you pay more than you should for something, or when you buy more things than you should actually buy, and actually one of the words that's used to describe extravagance in the dictionary.com, not the Bible, is wasteful. And so a lot of us, when we think of extravagance, we think of, I don't know if you've seen some of those shows before, if you ever watch the house shows, and they'll have like the extreme houses, and they'll be like the richest houses. And some guy will have like a a gold-plated water slide that comes from the fifth floor of his mansion, goes through like the west wing, and comes back and lands in his living room in the swimming pool that's in the lobby of the living room. And then downstairs, there's like, you know, elevators for cars, and the cars cost more than the average house in America. And you're watching at first, you're just like, man, this is crazy. And then you see the bowling alley and the theater, which has all the movies before they actually come out. And eventually, like, this is like, it's kind of disgusting. It's just too much. Especially in light of a time where there's, there's like some part of our culture that's like, extravagance is awesome. So you see the rappers, and they're spinning like their 48-inch rims, like, ball up, <laughs> Right? No, 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 not me, or no, not it. But but I also there's another show that comes on HGTV. Have you seen this? Teeny house. Have you seen the teeny houses? And it's like the size of a shed. And what ends up happening is it's got a toilet in there. And there's like a bedroom that sits over top of the toilet. That looks great. And then you can like have the kitchen fold out over the toilet too if you want. It's like all in this one little house. And it's the simplicity of it that's exalted. Just so you know, sometimes the heart issue is the same for the person who's buying all the stuff. And the person who's flaunting that they don't buy all the stuff. Sometimes the same heart issue is all I'm saying. Look at me, what I can do. Look at me, what I could do, but don't. And we live in a time where, you know, decluttering is like the fat. Uh, to fast from social media and promptly tell everyone on social media that you're fasting from social media is actually more spiritual than the extravagant lifestyle. So to hear the word extravagant, and then I'm going to put in this message, I'm going to talk about how that's the very thing that God's looking for in your life will be dissonance to some of your ears. But bear with me and realize what we're talking about. Don't get it from me. Get it from this right here in the scripture when we go to it. And so go back in your word. Try and imagine being there. It's the Passover time. That's going to become incredibly relevant next week, by the way, when we look at the Lord's Supper and how Jesus redefines the Passover. But it's Passover time. That's a crazy time. It's chaos. Jesus, one time, his parents lose him during the Passover. (laughs) So if you ever lost your kids, Jesus' parents did the same thing. There are a lot of people there. People debate about how many. Did, it, did the population double, triple, quadruple? Josephus says in about 30 years from now, there's a time when there's over 2 million people in Jerusalem. There's a lot of people is the point. And there's a bunch of folks there. This is the biggest festival, that they, the feast that they celebrate in the New Testament from the Old Testament feast. And what it was, if you're not familiar with the Passover, you can read on your own later in in a Bible. And if you don't even have a Bible, we've got copies we give away. But in the second book of the Bible, in Exodus, in chapter 12, it talks about the Passover. And what's happening at that point is that God's people have been held in bondage for hundreds of years up until that point. And God was sending plague after plague after plague to show that the guy who was holding them in bondage was not more powerful than God. And it comes to the last plague, which is the plague of the firstborn. And all the firstborn children are going to be killed, except in the homes, where they take the lamb's blood and they spread it on the doorpost of the home, and the death angel will pass over that home. And so as they celebrate that every year afterwards, and they think about the Passover Lamb, it's a reminder of God's grace, of God's mercy, of God's love, of God's deliverance, of God's freedom. And then here's Jesus Christ sitting in this home, who, by the way, is God in the flesh. He's God's mercy in the flesh. He's God's grace in the flesh. He's God's freedom in the flesh. He came. He says in Luke chapter 4, I came to set the captives free. Read all the gospels. There's not one prison break. He's talking about you and me from the bondage of sin. And here they are, they're celebrating the Passover. He's about to redefine. He is God in the flesh. He is mercy in the flesh. He's grace in the flesh. He's God's love in the flesh. And he's sitting there at this home. And so he's left Jerusalem, and we see when he leaves Jerusalem, each night during this week, this week when they're building up to the cross in the gospel of Mark here, is he's going to this town called Bethany. And did you see whose house he was at? Go back to your Bibles, don't just trust me. In verse 3, it says that he's at this house of this guy named Simon the leper. Now, we don't know anything about this guy, to be really honest. We assume that he's been healed by Jesus because it might be like Jesus to go to a leper's house and have a meal, but there's other people there. And we know that being a leper is one of the biggest social outcasts that you can possibly have during this time. It's a sign, it's actually used symbolically of sin. And so it's not only is the, the physical problems of the disease of actual leprosy, which we've talked about in sermons in the past, but there's this emotional scarring that happens. You have to, everywhere you go, you have to yell out, unclean, unclean. And I realize some of you here today, by the way, you think if, if people really knew you, it'd be like you yelling out, unclean, unclean. And they're at this guy's house, and he's not just Simon. He's called Simon the leper, which is like a names associated with him. And so it's kind of like, back then, uh, if you had a whole family that was tall people, they'd be like nicknamed the Goliaths. <laughs> it's like now, if you've got a guy who's uh, vertically challenged like myself, <laughs> hey, shorty, you got some dude that's real big. Hey, what's up, biggie? And so he's the leper. It's a nickname that's probably stuck with him. He probably has been healed. We don't know that for sure, but he probably has. And we read in some of the parallel accounts that you can look up. Matthew tells this story, a different perspective. John tells the story, and he tells us some of the characters that are there. One of the guys that we know is there is Lazarus. And that's in John chapter 12. Lazarus is raised from the dead in John chapter 11. (laughs) There's some interesting characters here at this meal. If I were there, I think I'd be, Lazarus, what was it like to be dead for four days? Would probably be one question. Jesus is there. Let's ask him what it was like to be in heaven and then come to earth. The leper, what was it like to be such a social outcast? What did that really, like in compassion asking the question, what did that feel like? And, when, and I don't know for sure who all the people that are here, but when I think about this, I imagine this story that there are, it's like a tapestry of people's lives that Jesus has changed that are at this meal. It's probably a banquet to celebrate life change, probably life change in the life of this guy named Simon, but you look around the room, I wonder who else was there. Was the guy with the shriveled hand there? What about the blind guy that was sitting at the side of the road going, the king, the king of David's kingdom has come, have mercy on me. And Jesus heals his eyes. What about the guy that was in Mark chapter five and he had so many demons in him that when Jesus cast them out, he threw him into a whole herd of pigs. I wonder if he's there. I wonder if Jarius is there whose daughter, Jesus, raised from the dead. Lazarus is there. He was raised from the dead. Simon the leper is there. And I wonder if as you look around this room, this is just like a tapestry of lives that have been changed. And I think about our church. And that's what it's like. If you're a guest here, just so you know, everybody here has a story. And everybody's story is different. And the majority of people that have been coming to our church for any amount of time, Jesus Christ has touched their lives and changed their lives in different ways. And they look different, and they're different ages, and they've got different jobs, and they dress different, and they might act different, different personalities. But they've got this one commonality, and it's Jesus Christ. And that's what's happening at this meal. And they're here, and then you know what happens. I already read you the story. Is that There's a woman. She's unnamed. Notice she's unnamed. That's significant. She's an unnamed woman. Because we find out who she is in another parallel account. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But it's this unnamed woman comes in, and she's wealthy. And we know she's wealthy because she's got an alabaster jar of perfume. Look at your Bibles. It's right in your Bibles. And we know that when we look back, ancient times in artwork and whatnot, we would see if a woman had a jar, an ancient, jar of perfume on her neck, it was a symbol of wealth. And so this one has got an alabaster jar, which is what you kept the most expensive perfume in. And she doesn't just open the jar, she breaks the jar because she's going to pour all of it out on Jesus. That's significant. And it, And it says there, and and I was reading from the ESV today, I got a new Bible, I'm probably using the ESV here for a little bit, that it was this ointment. Some of your Bibles say perfume, and some talk about it as an oil. This was odd what she did. She was not an essential oil saleswoman. You just need some lavender, Jesus, here, put this on. No, no stress on that, but it would have been socially weird what took place. Now, it's normal to be anointed during a meal. It was normal for a man to be anointed between the courses. In fact, it would be normal for him to even anoint himself. In fact, they probably came to the end of the meal, where it was about to be done with the food, and now onto the drinking section of the celebration. And it would be natural for there to be an anointing time. What's not natural is for it to be a woman. What's really not natural is for it to be a wealthy woman. What's really unnatural is for it to be a unwealthy, or for it to be a wealthy woman and she's anointing a man who's not her husband. But notice that the people are not shocked by the social barriers and boundaries that she's just stepped over, but by the cost of the perfume. Look at it. It says in verses 4 and 5, they, they call it a waste. Verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment oil perfume wasted like that? I thought it was a waste. It's extravagant. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. A denarii is one day's wage for the average day laborer. And so if you want to put it in perspective for us, uh, 7.25 is minimum wage, and so let's say 7.25 to like ten dollars an hour would be a day labor. We get paid something like that, and if they work ten hours to twelve hours a day, three hundred days, you're looking somewhere between twenty and thirty thousand dollars. So let's just say $25,000. This is a twenty-five thousand dollar bottle of perfume, and they're looking at it and they're going, "That's a waste. That could have been given to the poor. And you're pouring it all out here on Jesus." So was it a waste? Because you look at the next verse, it's not a secret. We already read the verse that Jesus says it's actually a beautiful thing. Oh, and by the way, if you go to the passage in Matthew, you find out that who's saying this, it's not a bunch of Pharisees. It's the disciples saying this is a waste. If you go to the book of John, you find out it was Judas who got them started in saying this. Okay, now it makes sense because it's Judas. But they are all saying it. Let me just let a little side note for you on this. Uh, because you face criticism when you do something by faith, doesn't mean it's wrong. In fact, it might be a sign that it's right. So the question for us as we come to this passage is, and that's even criticism from believers, by the way. Was it a waste? And the answer comes from it depends on whose eyes you're looking through. From God's perspective, it was beautiful. From these followers of Jesus' perspective, it was a waste. They didn't get it yet. And so let me ask you this question. Is it a waste when a young person who's got much promise gives their life to missions? I mean, they could be really successful here. It's not like their second team, like, let's just send them overseas because they're not really that good here anyways, and so we'll just get rid of them. But I mean, I'm, like, say, imagine parents, one of your kids is going to the medical field. They've done great in science. They're going to probably be able to write in journals one day and have their name published and work at the best hospitals and be the head, whatever the chief is called in the hospital places. And they say, I'm going to go to Africa. I don't want to serve patients that won't be able to pay me. Is it a waste? Don't answer. Don't answer out loud. Don't answer. Answer in your heart. Because each one might have a different answer. Is Is it a waste? Because a lot of people that have gone on mission field have been told they're wasting their lives. I remember one of the first missionaries I heard of when I became a Christian was a guy named Jim Elliott. And if you've been around Christianity for a while, you've probably heard his story. If you haven't, uh, Jim Elliott's story is that he was a student back in the 50s at Wheaton uh, College up in the Chicago area. And he and some different classmates went and they tried to reach some folks in Ecuador. The Aka Indians that were unreached, hadn't heard the gospel before, savages. Within a few moments of encountering them for the first time, Jim and his four friends were all murdered. And then many people said after that, what a waste! They had so much potential. I mean, they're in their twenties. What a waste of a life, which then probably sealed this statement that came from his journal, obviously written before he died. That he wrote about his own. He said, "He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose." Thinking about eternal rewards. So, who's right? The people that were saying he wasted his life, or him? And what does God think? What's a waste? I think I've shared with you before uh, about the missionary John Patton. John Patton uh, went and reached the island, the New Hebrides Islands, and the only missionaries that had been there before him actually had been eaten by cannibals. As he was getting ready to go, one of his elders said to him, cannibals, the cannibals, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. And he says, I think we have it. I think we might have the quote you can put up online. He says to, to the guy who's saying it to him, Mr. Dixon, you're advancing years now. You're getting old. Your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. You're going to die. They are to be eaten by worms. (laughs) And then the next statement has so much moxie, I love it. I confess to you that if I can live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. (laughs) I'm pouring my life out for Christ. So the question with that statement is then, who's wasting their life? He goes on, and the great day of my resurrection body will rise. It's just as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. We're both going to get glorified bodies. You'll waste away in the grave eaten by worms. Did you waste your life? Or am I wasting my life? And each person has to decide the answer to that question. And it depends on whose eyes you look through. See, say, oh, that's a long time ago. I was reading this week about some missionaries, different folks that were arrested, put in prison for the gospel today. Now. One guy, Peter Yasek, if you want to look his name up, you can. It's on Voice of the Martyrs as well as reading the article. He gets arrested, spends 445 days away from his family in a prison in a dangerous country with ISIS fighters, radical Islamists, with murderers, with violent criminals in this prison. Could be with his kids, could be with his wife. 445 days, talks about being tortured and abused and the stuff that happened. So the worst segment was three days he spent in a jail cell that had no running water. And they wouldn't let him sleep. So they'd come by and they'd bang on the bar so they couldn't fall asleep. He said, if I did lay down on my bed, mice came running across my body. Did he waste 445 days of his life or was that like pouring out perfume on Jesus' head? Was it extravagant worship? One woman, a mother. So you moms, you think about this. She's a kindergarten teacher in China. Her name is Shang Ji. Same website that I was reading this on. And she's teaching in her kindergarten and is accused of using religious curriculum. And so she gets two years in a labor camp, away from her one-year-old and three-year-old. And she talks about going back to them and having fear after the two years in the labor camp is up that the kids won't even know who she is because she hasn't seen them in two years. Was that a waste? Is it just a tragedy? Or is it beautiful in the sight of God? What is a waste? Is it a waste to spend your whole life working towards a time so that you can hit a little white ball around an adult playground? Or is it a waste to pour out your life for Jesus Christ? Is it a waste to pursue everything trying to build up your own kingdom so people will know your name so that you'll have a legacy that, by the way, in about two years after you're dead, it'll be done? Some other guy will marry your wife. They'll die. No one will remember any of them. Maybe you'll have some life insurance. There's your legacy. Or should you be pouring it out for the sake of the gospel? What's the waste? They thought it was a waste. Jesus said it was beautiful. Why does Jesus say it's beautiful? Because if we're going to do this, if we're going to pour our lives out, how do we, because notice we're talking about worship here, and there's no singing in this passage. How is, it, how is it beautiful? Well, look at verse 7. It starts with the word for, because. This is a beautiful thing to me. Why? Verse 7, for. Because. Here's why it's beautiful. And we see at least three reasons. The first one's in verse 7. Second one's in verse 8. Third one's in verse 9. First reason's this. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. And some people take this verse and they use it as like an excuse to not help. Like the poor, they're just always going to, will always have the opportunity to do that. The poor going to be good. And the contrast here, some people think, is between Jesus and the poor. And there, so that would imply that Jesus is saying, don't help the poor. Which would be contrary to everything else we've seen in Jesus' ministry. And so you go through the gospels, especially the gospel of Luke, you see Jesus' heart for the poor and for the hurting. But you go to Matthew, you see in Matthew chapter 25, he says that what you do unto the least of these you do to me. And you see how he cares for the orphans. You see how he speaks up on behalf of the widows. The religious people are devouring the widows and he's defending the widows. It's clear that Jesus has a care for the poor. He's not saying something negative against the poor. In fact, you can go read it on your own. He's probably quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 11 where it talks about the poor will always be among you and the very next statement is, so you're going to have opportunities to always be generous with them. So he's not discouraging generosity of the poor. He's saying, no, you can do that anytime. The contrast is probably between what you can only do right now and what you can do anytime. And there's only one person here in this passage who heeds the command of verse 37 in chapter 13. Wake up! Be alert! There's one person who's alert. And it's this woman because she's aware of what's happening. She comes. She realizes the moment. She knows that it's time. Her whole life is not spent pouring out perfume on Jesus. This is like a climactic moment and she's ready for it. And you know what we learn about her? Is if we go back to John's account in John chapter 12 as we find out who she is. Her name is Mary. Mark has intentionally told us that not her because he wants to focus in on the act that she does. But if you read the parallel account in John, in John chapter 12, her name is Mary. She's Mary, the sister of Martha the brother of Lazarus. Lazarus is raised from the dead in John chapter 11. The account takes place in John chapter 12. And you know something else that's interesting about Mary? And I learned this this week and, and, and maybe this is a big deal and maybe it's not. I'm, not. I'm not positive. But every time you see Mary in the Bible, she's at the feet of Jesus. And so you go to Luke chapter 10 and verse 39. And it's that famous meal where Martha's serving. She's busy serving and then Mary's at Jesus' feet listening Listening to his teaching, it says that Mary chose the better, better thing. And you go to John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, Mary's brother has just died. He's been dead for four days. Jesus shows up and she comes out. She falls at Jesus' feet and says, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And she listens to what Jesus has to say next. The next place is the parallel account of this passage. In John chapter 12 and verse 3, we find out not only did she pour oil on his head, but also she poured it on his feet and she's wiping his feet with her hair. And maybe I might be wrong, but it seems like there's something that can happen at the feet of Jesus that can only happen at the feet of Jesus. It's learning to listen to him. You see, the first reason why her offering is beautiful because she's awake. She's aware. She's listening. Let me tell you something. God wants to speak to you. He wants to speak to you right now. Are you listening? Would you know his voice? If he, even if he did speak to you, would you even know? in my own time with the Lord, not sermon prep this week, just talking to God, we were talking about this and I was asking, I was like, God, how, how do I know if it's you speaking? Like you see these verses like in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 30, it talks <laughs> about this still small voice that you hear and it'll tell you which way to go, to the right or to the left and it guides you. I'm like, how do I know? Because God, when I'm talking to you, sometimes your voice and my voice sound a lot alike. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> his voice sounds a lot like my wife's voice. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I hear these, it's like, what? he hears voices? What's going on? Like, but as I'm praying, I'm asking God, God, what do you want us to do? What is the next step? What's the next step for our church? What's the next step for me personally? What do you, want, what do you desire in my life? And as I'm wrestling with that, I'm talking to him about it. I remember, I a couple things down in my journal, and, and he laid on my heart John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, so we've already talked about John chapter 12, and John chapter 11, Lazarus dies. John chapter 10, what's happening is that Jesus is talking about himself as the good shepherd. And, and he says this statement in verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. So how do the sheep know the shepherd's voice? It's from repeatedly listening to it. And so forget about technology. Imagine you didn't have caller ID. How do you know someone's voice when they call you? Because you've talked to them before. If you call me up, we've never talked on the phone before. And you just start telling me something. i be like, hey, 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 who is this? But if you and I talk all the time on the phone and you call me, I don't have to ask. I just know. I know your voice because I'm familiar with your voice. Some of you, you wonder, how do I get familiar with his voice? Well, he speaks to us through his word. What is he saying? Are you in his word? Are you hearing his word regularly? Do you know what's what's characteristic of the way that he speaks, the way that he directs, the way that he guides? Psalm 119 says his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. He guides us according to his word. And so when you ask him to speak to your heart, what he's going to then impress upon you is what's already true in his word. But do you know it? Do you recognize it? Because here's what also happens. When he speaks to you and you're not listening, it's like his voice starts to get more dim and more dim. And you hear, maybe you hear him and he tells you what to do and you... I don't want to do that. I'm going to do it. It's a little bit more faint next time. And eventually it becomes like that friend that you used to talk to a lot. And like when you were kids, you'd be on, you, know, you, didn't, you knew their number by heart and all. you had it now. you talked. But if he called you today, like, who is this? See, Mary spends all this time at the feet of Jesus. And it's like when this moment comes, she's ready. At least three times Jesus has said, listen, I'm going to be betrayed I'm going to be handed over to the chief priest, the elders, the teachers of the law. I'm going to be murdered. And then after three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. And it seems like with the disciples, it's just flying over their heads. But maybe she understood because Jesus says that this is, this is his anointing for burial. This is the anointing he gets. The women go to anoint him. And when we get to Easter Sunday, they go to anoint him, but they don't ever get to. This is his anointing, right? It's like she, no, she's aware. She's awake. Wake up. God's speaking to you. He's speaking to you right now. Are you listening? Would you even know his voice if he spoke? But it's not just that. That's verse 7. Verse 8 tells us another reason why. It was because her not only was she awake, but what she does is unrestricted. It's unreserved. In verse 8, it says, she's done what she could. Literally, you could translate that. She has done what she had. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She gave everything she could. The wording here is very similar to when we were in Mark chapter 12 and we talked about the widow's offering and the widow came with her two mites and she dropped on a plate and then Jesus said afterwards she gave everything she had to live on. It's a similar idea. Now, different proportions here. Well, she gave $25,000 bottle of perfume versus like 50 cents. But that's not the point. The point is they both gave what they had. You go back to the story in Mark chapter 6. And Mark chapter 6 is another place where the disciples are calculating and trying to figure out whether Jesus is being a good steward of the resources that are available. What's happened is they've gone out two by two. Judas was one of them. They go out two by two. They're doing miracles. They're casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They're healing people. They come back to Jesus. They're reporting. They're pumped about what's happened. And then Jesus says, let's get away. Let's have some rest. But there's all these people and they're coming. And so Jesus sees these people and he has compassion on them. But instead of doing something for their physical needs, you know what Jesus does? He teaches them. Because what's most important is they need to know the truth. And then the disciples bring up, hey, these, these folks need to eat. Uh, send them away so they can go get some food for themselves. And then Jesus says, no, you feed them. I wonder about the disciples' attitude in that. <laughs> like, how do you get when your blood sugar gets yet low? <laughs> Hangry? yeah. And uh, I wonder if, I mean, Jesus is obviously an incredible teacher. It wasn't that Jesus was boring them or anything, but it's like, all right, Jesus, you've been teaching for a while now. These people are, we wanted some rest in the first place. I'm kind of annoyed with all these people. Could you send them, and I'm going to disguise it like they need to go get something to eat. Why don't you get them out of here? And then Jesus says, you feed them. And then one of them goes, that's 200 denarii. Not as much as this bottle of perfume, 300 denarii, but 200 days wages. One of them calculates it. And I think they're saying, that wouldn't be a good use of... Just for one meal for 5,000 men plus the women and the children? And then Jesus doesn't say back to them, go raise 200 denarii. He doesn't say gather to see if everybody's got a little leftovers. We pile everything together. Maybe we'll have enough food. At least we can have a snack. No, Jesus says, you give me what you have. You give what you have, whatever that is. You give what you have and I'll do what only I can do. And I'm going to do it through you. They feed the crowd. Because you we were almost inaccurate in saying that Jesus fed. Now Jesus—it all was because of Jesus. Jesus receives all the glory. Jesus, the one, who was the source. But they're the ones who handed out the food. They're the ones who gathered it back up, and everybody was satisfied at the end. But you give what you have. Some of us were holding back on what we give to Jesus. Let me ask you this question. I'm going to pause after I ask it because I'm serious, and I don't want you just to blow by it. Have you ever sacrificed for Jesus? Don't answer out loud. Have you ever sacrificed for Jesus? Or has your relationship with Jesus been all about what you get? And here's the follow up statement. Because in proportion to the way you pour your life out for Jesus, the proportion of the way you sacrifice for Jesus reveals your love. And so we can say we love Jesus. No, I love Jesus more than I give to Jesus. That's not true. It's just not true. If you want to know your heart, And how are you spending your life for Jesus? And so your money is probably what most people naturally go to, your money. But your time, your talents, your life every day that you have. Don't redeem the time, Ephesians chapter 5. Redeem the time. You can't get tomorrow back. Are you wasting your life is really the question. Is it a waste? Because Jesus is the life that's poured out for him. And you want to see the picture of love and what love is. You see an act of it here with this woman. But what you see really is that it's like she gets it. She's alert. And so she's unreserved. It's like sacrifice means sacrifice. Love comes into contact with love because the ultimate picture is the sacrifice Jesus does. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus, it's the cross is the ultimate picture of sacrifice and it's also the ultimate picture of love. But it's not just what happened on the cross. Think about what led up to the cross. There was a problem. Before Jesus even came to the earth, the problem was this, that you're a liar. You might be offended by that. It's just true, sorry. You're an adulterer. I'm not an adulterer. You ever have a lustful thought? You're a thief. So it's not just this vague like we're all sinners. It's like your sin, your lying, your stealing, your deception, your adultery. So now we've got a problem. Can't be can't be in right relationship with God. There's nothing you can do to make it right because this standards perfection. You can never back up and be perfect. We've all sinned. We've all lied, we've all stolen, we've all cheated, we've all murdered, we've all done all these coveted our neighbor stuff, we've all done all these things, there's greed and lust, it's all in our hearts. And so then Jesus leaves heaven, comes to earth, is tempted with every temptation we have. Tempted to lie, tempted to be greedy, tempted to lust. All the temptations that we experience, he knows what it's like. He gets hungry, he gets tired, and then he comes to the place where he has done nothing wrong. He's lived his life, done his ministry, loved, you know, re- loved people, compassion, healed people, and they nail him to a cross. He's accused. They beat him. They flog him. They tear out his beard. They beat him so bad he can't even carry his own cross. They get to go Golgotha. No one takes his life. He lays his life down. They nail nails through his wrists, through his feet. They hang him up in the sun. They mock him and say, Save yourself. And then God the Father turns his face away from God the Son and he pours out his wrath for your lust and for your sin and for your deception and for your stealing on Jesus. That is love. He was rich, became poor. So that you might have access to his riches. For you're, you're loved and that you, while you were his enemy, he died for you. That's the picture of love. The sacrifice reveals the love. That was an extravagant gift, by the way. And so what's a waste? What's a waste? Is it the person who spends their whole life just trying to hit a little white ball around a place? Or is it the person that pours their life out for Jesus? Which one's a wasted life? But it's not just what we do. You look at the next verse and it's what Jesus does with the gift. So it's the gift that's, that's awake, alert. Are you awake? Wake up! Unrestricted, unrestrained. But it's also the gift that's multiplied. Look at verse nine. It's the gift that's multiplied which is the work only God does. You don't multiply your gift. God multiplies the gift. And truly I say to you, whatever, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done, not her, it's not about Mary, it's not even about her, it's not about this woman. That's why her name's intentionally not mentioned here in Mark. It's like a photographer when they take a picture and they intentionally blur the background so you focus in on what they want you to see. It's what she's done. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The fact we're reading this verse today is a fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus made. And she's impacted lives. She had no idea when she poured out this perfume the impact it would have 2,000 years later in our lives. No idea who we even are. God does beyond what we could ask or imagine. And when we are unreserved and we're actually pouring our lives out, not the stuff we're trying to do so that we can get noticed, not the stuff we're trying to do so that we can earn rewards heaven, but when we're pouring our life out because we love Jesus, true love for Jesus results in extravagant worship of Jesus. And when we do that, because we're alert, because we're unreserved, God multiplies that. And so you go back to the widow's offering, same kind of language. What happens in her life? She pours it out and then God uses it. She doesn't even know that Jesus notices and so I wonder, and when she gets to heaven, it's like, whoa, you saw that. that? And wait a minute, 2016 years later, there's this church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and they're inspired by that. I don't know if you were here when we were in Mark chapter 12, but that day we gave the entire offering away, whatever you guys put in the black box, all that stuff, we gave it away to a woman here in town that had just come out of Raleigh Rescue Mission, terrible situation, five kids, single mom. And that was inspired by that widow 2,000 years earlier. God multiplies it. You go to the feeding of the 5,000. That little boy brings his lunch to Jesus. Could have had no idea that 5,000 men plus women and children would be fed. But then people would talk about it for century upon century. It would impact millions upon millions of people. God multiplies it. But not of those that are wasting their lives. They're forgotten. How many people aren't mentioned in the Bible that were there? How many people didn't pour their lives out for Jesus? They made superficial commitments and Satan pulled it away. How many people they thought they were really close to Jesus? Like Jude, I don't think Judas knew, honestly. How many people are like that? How many people are like that here? Don't have a reputation for being alive but be dead. Wake up. Don't pretend to be hot or cold, but you're really lukewarm. Wake up. God uses it in a significant way. I remember the the first lady I ever had the privilege of seeing place her faith in Jesus after I had become a Christian. I was about 17, 18 years old. And the guy who had led me to Christ had introduced me to a relationship, told me about my sinfulness and being in a bad relationship with God and didn't realize that. God's out there. He loves everybody. It's kind of my thought. But when I realized my sin and my need for a Savior, and I started this relationship with Jesus, he started to teach me the Bible. And then he, he called me up one day and he said, Do you want to go with me to see another person place their faith in Christ? I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. Let's go. And uh, we went over to this woman's house. She's about 70 years old. Her name was Margie. She might have been a little bit more than 70 years old. And she had lived her life uh, believing and teaching evolution, going on archaeological digs. Her husband was an archaeologist. I remember that correctly. And she had started coming to a Bible study that my friend was teaching. The guy who led me to Christ had been teaching on creation and he was talking about how creation actually reveals God and points us to God. And she believed that. And she, she, she could see it. She's like, all these years, I, didn't, I never realized the Creator in all of this. But she didn't know the Creator. And so we went over there to tell her about how she could have a relationship with the Creator, told her about Jesus. And I shared my story, and then he shared the gospel truth that we're all sinners, that we fall short of God's perfect standard, the wages of our sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life. And then she places her faith in Jesus Christ, as Christ to be her Savior. It was, a, it was an amazing experience. But what I won't forget, and the reason why I remember her, but not just because it was the first one that I saw, the first person I saw come to Christ, but because of what she said at the end, about 30 minutes after she trusts Christ. I'm 17, 18 years old. There's another guy there that's about 16, 17 years old that came with us. And she hugged both of us, and then she said, you have the rest of your life to live for Jesus. And it was like this time of celebration, but also sadness. Because she had only been a Christian for like 30 minutes. But she was realizing, I can't get those days back. The 70 or 72 years that I've lived, and I've only got, I don't how many days left. You know what Jesus would say? Give what you have. You can't get yesterday back. My question to you is this, if God's speaking to your heart today about pouring your life out to him, how is this next week going to be different than last week? Because if you just do the same thing you did last week, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to sit in the same seat next Sunday and you're going to, oh, that was a good message and no different. What are you going to do? God wants to multiply your impact. And some of you, you are pouring your life and you feel like it's not significant. I don't want you to feel guilty. You give what you have. You invest in those kids. You serve whatever capacity you have, whatever talent. You would say, I wish I had this talent. I wish I could sing. I wish I could do whatever. That's not your talent. You use the talent that you have, pour it out for Christ, and he will multiply it. There's two, white, two mites this widow gave. A little lunch the boy gave. Now this woman here, extravagant. You got a lot. You can't go, oh, two mites. I'm giving my two mites, but I got a $25,000 bottle of perfume. no. That's Judas-type stuff, man, which is the contrast that we see next. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, then Judas Iscariot, this ties us back to the beginning. Remember, the beginning, they're plotting to kill him. But they decided they were going to wait because they were afraid of the people. But then things changed. Because then Judas Iscariot, something happened when this woman gave this perfume, and he thought it was a waste. Something triggered in his heart. It's time now. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, let's make sure that's clear, one of the 12 closest in John's account. Not only was he one of the 12, he had a place of leadership. We find out that he was actually the treasurer and he was stealing money from the offerings. He wasn't concerned with the poor. He loved money. And we see throughout the Bible, you can't love God and money. You might deceive it. He probably deceived himself, probably thought he did. I don't think Judas, re- I don't even know if Judas knows that he's betraying Jesus. Let's look at it. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. Now here's the opportunity we were waiting for. We can't miss this opportunity, even if it is the Passover. And this is just all shows God's sovereignty in the process, by the way. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This Judas is a total contrast to Mary. Everywhere you see Mary in the Bible, she's at the feet of Jesus. What Mary does is beautiful. What Judas does is terrible. Every time you see Judas' name mentioned in the Bible, he is Judas the betrayer. Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. That is his legacy. And what we see with Judas is there's debate about why he did this, but the the clear thing is that he was living for himself. And we talk about how true love of Jesus results in extravagant worship for Jesus. And what we see with self-love is that it results in self-worship. And that is an abomination to God. And there are many people in the church that do this very thing. What Judas was doing was he was close to Jesus. This is why it's scary. Uh, people had no clue that Judas was betraying Jesus. Because when we get to the Last Supper and then Jesus ends up saying, uh, the one of you is, is going to betray me, and, and, they, and Judas gets up and leaves, they still don't even think, he's going to betray us. No. no, He probably went to go. They think the best. They think he, this guy's he's one of them. He cast out demons in the name of Jesus. He's serving. He is a leader in their group, pretty small church, 13 people. He's got them all faked out. I don't even know if he knew. Hearts are deceptive and wicked and deceitful above all things. His legacy, total contrast to her legacy. He comes to get, she comes to give. Everything about them is a contrast. He's a man, she's a woman, like all of it is a contrast. But what happens with him, why? Scholars debate about this. The Bible doesn't tell us for sure. The Bible does tell us he's filled with Satan. The Bible does show us that he has a love for money. We see those things, but there's never like, this is why he did it. This is what happened. So people debate. And some people think that what Judas was doing is he was actually a political zealot. And when he followed Jesus in the beginning, he thought, well, he's a powerful teacher. And so if I follow him, I'll become powerful. I'll become wealthy. I'll, I'll get position. Like, I'll get, and it wasn't happening. And I thought maybe, maybe some believed that he wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome. And when he said things like, Panda Caesar, what is Caesar's? Unto God, what is God's? He realized, wait, the kingdom you're building is not the kingdom that I thought. We've only got two swords, 12 guys. This is a problem. Some people think that Judas actually went to these religious leaders, not with an intention to betray Jesus, though. That's how it's been remembered. But that his intention was actually to help Jesus out. That Jesus wasn't doing what he wanted him to do, and so he thought he'd force Jesus' hand. And so we're going to get the, when these people come after you to arrest you, then you'll rise up your kingdom. Then we'll fight. And so a good question for you, if you want to know if you're a Judas, is how do you respond when God does something different than the way you wanted it done? Because Mary, I'm pretty sure she didn't want her brother to die in John chapter 11. But she didn't go betray Jesus. She didn't turn her back on him. She's not acting like a spoiled brat. Because that will reveal your heart. So things aren't going the way that he wanted. See, what he's really doing with Jesus, it shows his self-love, his self-interest. He's using Jesus to get to his real God, which is what some of us do in the American church. And our real God might be money, it might be power, it might be popularity. It it could be all kinds of different things that we want, but we're just using Jesus to deliver our true God to us. That's called self-worship, by the way. And, and that's the kind of person who's going to stand before Jesus one day and say, "Depart from me, I never knew you. You knew my name, you used me in certain social settings. you used me in the church, you used me to get a leadership position. You used me so that other people would think you were great, but I don't know you. You don't hear me. You don't hear my voice when I speak to you. Wake up! Amen. You're restricted, you are reserved. You're holding back, and you're even making it look spiritual. That's not what I want. I want extravagant worship from you. I want your whole life. I wish you were hot or cold. But you're, at least if you're going to, he says cold. At least if you're going to, don't go to church. Don't pretend with church. Don't do your devotion. Don't do, per, be a pagan. Be against me. Make it real clear. Or be all in. I want one or the other. I wonder how it feels to God to receive love from people that are trying to use him. And that's all they have for her. The other day, I was with my daughter. I didn't share this in the first service, so hopefully I won't get in trouble for this one. But uh, I was with my daughter the other day, and we were at the dollar store, and she loves gum. And she started badgering me to buy her some gum. And I just got worn out, and I bought her some gum. So I'm not good parenting. I'm not saying you should do this. We got in the car, and she says to me, I believe my daughter really loves me, but she says to me, Dad, you're the best dad in the whole world. And I felt so annoyed and offended by her love. Because I thought, you're only saying that because I bought you gum. What cheap love, by the way. It's a dollar store gum. But anyway. <laughs> and I wonder, when God looks at our, when we say that we love him, is it beautiful in his sight like it was with Mary? Or is it offensive? Like Judas. And no one here would probably say, I'm a Judas. I'm a betrayed Jesus. But I don't think he knew. And if he did, he was sure using Jesus the whole time. What about you? What would it look like if we did this? What would it look like if we were a church to did this? Let me tell you what it looked like. It looked like the book of Acts when people that were unreserved and given everything away to God and they would listen to him and when he said to do something, they went and they counted a blessing to be tortured by Jesus. They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching so they were in the word on a regular basis so they could hear his voice. They dedicated themselves to prayer. When somebody faded away, when somebody fades away in this church, because that happens, right? Like new people come and then other people go and somebody else just sits in their seat. Does anyone even notice? You care for one another when people have needs. Do you even know? And if they do, are you willing to give up what you have so that their needs are met, so that they don't go without a meal, so that their their rent's getting paid, so that whatever the details are, are you, are you do it? That's what the that's what the early church did. You know what the early church did? They ran to problems. They ran to danger at the risk of their own lives. When there was plagues, they come. When family members were kicking sick people out of the house, the Christians were coming and nursing them. That's what it looked like. Extravagant worship. There's no singing here. So what does it look like for you? Well you've got to ask god and if he speaks to you will you even hear him don't don't be asleep wake up let's pray father i pray that our church southbridge would never be a church that has a reputation for being alive but is dead and god i know that happens with us individually each one of us individually you speak into our hearts and you don't let us play the game And you don't let us go through the motions. And God, change us. Change us to have a care for one another unlike any church people have seen or experienced before. Help us to have a care for the lost people in our community so that we wouldn't be laissez-faire and lackadaisical and and finding a one and and, and pursuing anyone that God brings across our path, that you bring across our path. God, give us a a passion for lost people. Give us a passion for your word. Give us a passion to pray and to speak with you. Give us a passion to worship you and to part our hearts for you so that we don't waste our lives. We only get one shot at this, God. Help us to make the most of every moment. And for those of us falling asleep, God, wake us up. Have us go to you. Repentance right now. Speak to our hearts. You want you got something you want somebody to do? God, I pray that you'd make that clear that if this is the moment, this is the time right now. We know Mary her whole life wasn't pouring out perfume, but she was ready when it was time. And I pray, I pray if there's somebody you're calling the mission field right now in this moment that you'd call that they would say, I know you spoke to me. Now it's a crossroads. They gotta decide that they're gonna obey. There's somebody here that's going, I might be a Judas. That they would not leave and then forget, and then your voice gets a little bit quieter and a little bit quieter, but even if they're a leader in our church, God, that you give them a conviction on their heart and today they would trust you as Savior, today they would repent and today they would come to know you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.